Are you guys doing good tonight? I'm going to say you guys. I'm never going to say y'all because I'm from the north, the great white north. So we got a couple partakers, so that's good. Naperville, Chicago, it's fine. (laughs) All right, who here likes Spider-Man? That's pretty good. Nestor likes Spider-Man, it's on his phone. James likes Spider-Man. I like Spider-Man. You guys might know where I'm going with this. We've been talking about the three R's, and there's one particular wise old Uncle Ben who has one particular wise old saying. If you know it, you can say it with me. All right, ready? With great power comes great responsibility. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. That's a classic superhero saying. But see, it isn't just true for superheroes. It's true for all of us. Like with great power comes great responsibility. Or to use a church word, with great revelation comes great responsibility. As God reveals himself to us, we become responsible. So this revelation equals responsibility. And so we're going to talk about responsibility tonight. But before we do, I want to recap quickly on the other two R's. So Nestor, two weeks ago, he talked about real devotional life and the importance of prayer. And Nestor said that prayer is for us, prayer is for others, and prayer is for praising God. And those are all so true. Prayer is for us, it's for others, and it's for praising God. And last week, Scroggins talked about real relationships. And I remember he said this. And he said it to me, and he said it many times to many people. He said, over my dead body will I let you live a stupid, selfish life. That's what Scroggins said. That's an important thing to remember when we talk about real relationships. If we really, truly care for others, we're going to say to them, I care more about your future than your feelings. Over my dead body, am I going to let you be stupid and selfish? He said that to me, and I've heard him say it to many others. Um, But as we begin to look at this concept of real responsibility, I want to start by turning to scripture. So I want us to turn to Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. And it'll be up on the screen. And as we get here to Nehemiah, I'm going to give a little bit of context on who he is. As we turn, I'll tell you a little bit about him. He's an Israelite who's living under Persian rule after the exile of the Israelites. He's the cupbearer of the king. So he's a servant to the king. He brings him wine and He asks his buddies how things are going in Jerusalem. He's caring about his hometown. He's in an under Persian rule, but he's still, his heart yearns for Jerusalem, for his people. And he asks his friends, and spoiler alert, his friends don't give him good news. Things are not great in Jerusalem. So in verse 3, Nehemiah writes this. He says, they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. And its gates have been burned with fire. (laughs) It's not a great thing. I don't know much about gates, but they should not be burned with fire. And when I heard these things, Nehemiah says, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So this is Nehemiah's response to what he hears. And this is the right response. Although he's living under this Persian rule, he's clearly not forgotten his people in Jerusalem. And he's still serving God. And so if we turn to chapter 2 in Nehemiah... Verses 1 through 9. So this is a little bit longer, but bear with me. He says this, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad? 
when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. So even though he's afraid of the king, he's still honest with him about where his heart is at. And the king said to him, what is it you want? And then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, this is very bold by Nehemiah here. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors are buried so I can rebuild it. And then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? Because I need someone to bring me my wine. It pleased the king to send me, so I sent a time. And I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so they'll provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. So Nehemiah is asking for letters so he can get there safely. And may I have a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the royal park, so he'll give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple, and for the city wall and the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of the trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. So there's a lot here in this little passage we have, but we see Nehemiah, his response is first to weep and mourn and to fast before the Lord. And then he wears his heart on his sleeve, and the king asks him, why are you sad? This shows that Nehemiah was clearly torn up by what is happening. And he answers in boldness and in prayer, and he asks for the king, I want to go rebuild my city. My people are hurting, and I want to go rebuild it. He asks for paid time off. (laughs) He asks for letters. He asks for materials. He asks for everything from a king who does not care at all about the Israelites' God. There's no reason why Artaxerxes should care at all about the Israelites or God. And yet, the gracious hand of God was upon him, and the king granted his requests. And if you notice, he also sends army officers and cavalry with him. So, Nehemiah asks for letters for safe travel. He sends letters, but he also sends armed guards. Those are armed guards that he's taking away from his own protection so that Nehemiah can go. Now, why would the king of Persia do this? Why would he do this? And I have to know that this is because Nehemiah was responding rightly to the responsibility he had for the people in Israel, that God granted his request and gave him even more than he ever asked. But if he was too scared to ask, he never would have gotten that, and the city of Jerusalem would have never been rebuilt, and they would never have been transformed the way that it was. And so this was an appropriate response that Nehemiah had to the responsibility of being an Israelite, was to pray, to fast, to mourn, and then to ask boldly, that God would provide, and he did. So this is an interesting thing that happens to us. This responsibility is thrust upon us in this life as Christians, and we can either embrace it or we can neglect it. A few years ago, I was leading small group at Sam Houston State University, and I was living in a a derelict house. It was a trap house, to use the terminology. It looked uh, very bad from the outside. People were afraid to enter it because it was very run down, and my landlord didn't care to fix it up. And anyway, so I've been living here for maybe a year or two at this point, and a person knocks on our door in the middle of the night. They actually come up to the front, and we can see him coming, and what what is this guy doing? We're hanging out, we're watching TV or something, you know, something holy like that. And we were watching TV, and he comes up to the door, and we're like, what is this guy doing? It's like 11, 12 o'clock at night. And he starts to open our front door, and we open it from him, like, hey, you can't come in here. He was a squatter looking to live in our house because he thought no one lived there. That's how bad the house looked. 
So I was not taking responsibility in keeping my house looking nice, but I got cheap rent, so it was worth it. But so he shows up at the front door, and we, I ask him, what are you doing? He's like, I, was, I thought no one lived here. It looked so bad. I'm so sorry. And I, I asked him, you know, his name. I asked him where he's staying, and, and again, he has nowhere to stay. And I find out that he's my age as well, and he's living in a tiny crevice between the library and a strip mall, like three blocks away from my house. I think, okay, all right, Lord, let's welcome him in, of course. And so I give him, it's, it's starting to get cold out. I give him like a nice hoodie that I have. I give him a pillow, toiletries, clothes, all that kind of stuff. And I tell him he can come over anytime he wants and we'll take care of him, you know. And my roommates saw my naive kindness and they let me do that. But they also warned me, Ryan, like we can't just let him into our house all the time because we don't know anything about him and what he might do. And I said, ah, it's all right. The Lord will take care of it. He'll, it'll be fine. I'll just take care of him. He's a, he seems like a decent guy, right? So his name is Stephen, and we start hanging out. He comes to small group. He comes over all the time. But uh, listening to my roommates, I didn't let him in the house too much. We would just sit on the porch and talk a lot. And so Stephen's coming over. We're developing a relationship. And I go over to where he's staying, right between the library. And I give him things that he needs and, and just simple things like that. Maybe a couple weeks go by, and one of our friends has a big, huge coin jar, like a big glass mason jar, maybe three gallons, that he's been saving coins in for years. Since before I met him, he's got a couple hundred dollars worth of change in this jar. And he's just sitting on his nightstand, and one day, it's not there anymore. And, I'm, and he's like, hey, do you guys know what happened to that? Like, did you move it? I'm like, you probably lost it. He's like, I didn't lose it. It's like 70 pounds. Like, I didn't, I didn't lose it. It's not like right there, like... So it was very interesting, and we just thought he was being, you know, he lost it, whatever, I don't know. And then a couple days later, my roommate and I, it's like 2 a.m., we're about to go to sleep, and he get, he's telling me about his day, we're talking, and he says, I had my Apple ID hack today, it's really weird. And I was like, huh, that's really interesting. And then at the very, like, at the, he's getting a bunch of emails during work, he's spending all day on, like, on the phone with Apple trying to figure things out, and he's like, what was that guy's name again? And I was like, Stephen, Stephen Brackens. And he's like, huh. We look at his bedside table, and he had an old cracked iPhone normally that he just kept there to play music, and it wasn't there anymore. And we put two and two together. And so at two in the morning, we go to what we called the crevice where he lived in between the library. At two in the morning, we walk over here. And Stephen's there, and he has some new things that he didn't have before. He's got an, a laptop. He's got DVDs. He's got stuff that people who live in a crevice don't normally have. And so we knew right then and there that he had stolen the coin jar and he had stolen that old cracked iPhone and hacked into his password. And the DVDs were from our house as well. And so we asked him, we said, Stephen, have you taken these from us? Have you taken these things from our house? No, no, no. Stephen, have you taken these things from us? And my roommate his name is Nick, and he's wonderful, and he is definitely, in regards to Jesus, how Jesus is the lion and the lamb, Nick is often the lion, um, and I am often the lamb. I've literally never yelled in my entire life except this one night. My wife can attest to this. I've exclaimed things, but I've never yelled, <laughs> except this one time. And Nick in this moment is being uncharacteristically tender. Nick is the lamb in this moment, and he's pointing to Stephen, and he says, Stephen, we, we know you took these things from our house. And he's pointing to me and he says, this man has given you everything. Why would you steal these things from us? 
Stephen, did you steal anything else? Again, we're trying to get the coin jar back. My roommate, who the coin jar belonged to, is there with us as well, and he's just kind of observing. So there's three of us here. Our fourth roommate is walking home from work where he worked. He had late night shifts, and he was walking home, and we texted him and said, hey, you know, he's going to walk right by us. So he joined us too. So we have four of us here. Two of them are just kind of observing, but me and Nick, are, and I'm just really standing there quietly, and Nick is so tender. He's like, this man gave you everything. Why would you steal this from him? And I'm just, I'm just watching and praying and thinking. And he won't admit to it. And we say, Stephen, did you take anything else from us? Stephen, we love you. Did you take anything else from us? He said, no, I didn't take anything. I didn't take anything else. And we're like, okay, Stephen, if you tell the truth to us, we're not going to, there's no big deal, okay? But if you lie to us, you keep lying to us, we have to call the police. We have to. I didn't steal anything else. I didn't steal anything else. You know, I took him to, I worked at the rec center. I took him there so he could take showers. I was like, you can still come to small group. Stephen, it's okay. We just want you to be honest with us right now. And he won't budge. He won't budge. So we say, can we look over here? He has got some stuff around the corner. Yeah, sure, okay. And we find the empty coin jar. And we find it. It's just huge empty jar. And my roommate, who we belong to, starts crying because he's been saving that for years. It's hundreds of dollars. That's where the laptop came from. And I look at him, and, and, and I don't say anything. And Nick continues to say, he says, very quietly and tenderly, though, he says, Stephen, we have to call the police. We have to. So one of our other roommates calls the police. And Stephen starts running. He starts running. So we're now we're in a crevice. We're in an alley. And in that moment, I don't know what to do. We don't know what to do. He's running. We can't just let him go. So I run after him. And I catch up to him pretty quickly, and I yell for the once and only time in my entire life, And I say to him, I say, Stephen, stop. Why are you running? And he turns and he looks at me. And in his eyes, he doesn't say anything, but in his eyes I see confusion and I see fear and I see pain. But he doesn't say anything. Stephen, why are you running? What are you running from? And we lock eyes for 10 seconds and then the police handcuff him and arrest him. And I've never seen him again. So that was the only time I've ever yelled. But in that moment, God spoke to me and he said to me, this is what you do to me. I give you my very best and you steal from me and you lie to me and you turn your back on me and you run. And in that moment, God transformed my life. He changed the way I look at every single person I've ever looked at ever since then. I now see people with value and dignity because I understand the weight of my own sin and the goodness and grace and mercy of Jesus. And so in that moment, I knew that there was a responsibility upon me. I had been leading small group for maybe two, three years at that point, but I was just really kind of being nice to people. I was telling them about Jesus, but I wasn't really introducing them to him. And in that moment, I knew there's more to it than just being nice, than giving him a jacket and giving him clothes. I have to show Jesus rightly to them in everything that I do. And it gave me a new vision for the people at my campus, at my work, or my job. Like, everything was different because of that. And that leads me to the first point of tonight, is that real responsibility is transformational. Real responsibility is transformational. We have all been given responsibility, and we either embrace it or we neglect it. If we choose to embrace real responsibility, it will change everything as it did for me. Like I said, when God spoke that to me, and that's really the only time I've ever heard him audibly say something so clear as that, 
Ryan, you do this to me every day. Everyone does. God shared a piece of his heart with me that will never be unshared. And he doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have to share his heart with us. But he chooses to, and I'm thankful for it. Because I began to love people better. I began to love them more like Christ. I wasn't just like a nice guy or a a stand-up, you know, class act. Because that was my fear. But I was really able to love people well because God transformed me through just a simple step of clothing a man and giving him basic amenities. And in that moment, God and the Holy Spirit stirred up the lion that had been dormant and had never shown itself before, which is part of the reason why I was simply only nice to people, because Jesus is the lion and the lamb, and it takes both parts. And the Holy Spirit will help us where we are weak in whichever way we lean. And so we can say it this way, that obedience to responsibility is the miracle grow. Obedience to responsibility is the miracle grow. For me, it was true for countless others that I've seen. When we are obedient to the responsibility God has given us, miracles literally happen. I've seen so many incredible things in my life, and I know that there is so much more to come when we simply take a small step in responding rightly to responsibility. As Christians, we are called to to run after the lost lambs of God, to ask them why they are running, all the while displaying to them how worthy Jesus is. Jesus says himself, he says, if you lift up my name, I will draw all men unto myself. And that's it. Jesus says, if we represent him rightly and we love others well, as he has called us to do, he will draw all people back unto himself. He does the work as long as we love people rightly and respond to responsibility. Thomas Merton has an incredible quote in regards to this. He says this, our job is to love others without stopping to inquire whether or not they are worthy. That is not our business. In fact, it's nobody's business. We don't love people because they're worthy of being loved. We love them no matter what. What we are asked to do is to love, and this love itself will render both ourselves and our neighbors worthy, if anything can. And I love that quote. I mean, our job is to love others, and that's it. It could end right there without stopping to inquire whether or not they are worthy. That's it. Stephen wasn't worthy of the love that I gave him, but neither am I worthy of the love that God has given me. It's true for all of us. At the same time, it sounds harsh, but it's also so beautiful because the story doesn't end with us not being worthy of being loved. The story ends with Jesus loving us anyway, despite all the flaws that we have. And it's beautiful. If we can grasp this idea of real responsibility, then Jesus can come back because he is waiting for a spotless bride. And we are called to be responsible for others. But sometimes when we're faced with this responsibility, we don't always embrace it. We can all think of examples where we refuse to take responsibility. I certainly have examples in my own life where I've said no to being responsible. I, I like to pretend that it doesn't exist or ignore it or hide the responsibility. You know, pretend I didn't hear that from the Lord or something like that. So sometimes we just ignore responsibility or we run from it. But rather than tell you guys those kind of stories and embarrass myself, let's look to Scripture for biblical examples of people not responding well to responsibility. So there's lots of examples throughout the Old and New Testaments to show us some of the responses to responsibility. So the first one that I pull out here is the refuser. So in Matthew 19, 16 through 22... Matthew nineteen sixteen through 22, we have the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what must I do in order to have eternal life? 
And I'm just going to give you guys a brief summary of these so you can study them more later. There's so much here. But the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. What more must I do? He says, I've kept all the commandments since my youth. And Jesus says, he points his finger right at his heart, as Jesus so often does, and says, sell all that you have, and then you can enter the kingdom of heaven. And the rich young ruler says he walks away sad, for he had many possessions. So he refused the responsibility that Jesus incarnate says, hey, just sell all you have. I'd like to think that if Jesus told me to do something very specific in person, like face to face, I ask him a question, he gives me the answer, that I would do it. But he doesn't here. And I'd say it'd be really hard to do that if I was in his shoes as well. So he refused responsibility. The next one that we have is the pretender. The pretender. And in this story, we have King Saul in 1 Samuel 15. 13 through 15, 17 through 23. You can read the whole, the whole entire chapter is incredible. But I'll summarize it for you guys. That Saul's been granted a vision from the Lord where he'll defeat the Amalekites. But God orders him to kill everyone, all the Amalekites, as judgment for their sins. God says, eradicate all of them. And Saul says, I want some of the loot. I want a little bit of it. I'm going to do what I want. You know, all right, God, you're going to help me kill them all, but I want, to, I want it my way. I want it done my way. So he pretends to obey God. Samuel the prophet comes and says, why do I still hear cattle and sheep in my ears? You were told to kill everything. And he says, oh, I saved them so I can sacrifice them to God. Yeah. He brought the king back as a prisoner. He wasn't supposed to, he was supposed to kill the king so that sin would not spread. And he doesn't. And Saul loses his kingship as a result of this. He pretended to be obedient to God, but the prophet Samuel says to him, to obey is better than sacrifice. God cares a lot more about obedience and responsibility than he does about burnt offerings and sacrifices. So Saul loses his kingship because he didn't listen to the Lord and obey. obey. The next one we have is the quitter. And this one is found in Acts 15, 36 through 40. And this is John Mark. So Paul and Barnabas are traveling together, visiting all the churches that they've planted. And they're about to go somewhere else. And Barnabas says, hey, let's bring John Mark. I like that guy. He's cool. Paul says, let's not bring him because he deserted us when we were in Pamphylia earlier. And Barnabas says, but he's my friend. I still want him to come with. And Paul says, but he deserted us. And we, we can't afford to have people who desert us while we're planting churches in Christianity in the known world. And so Paul and Barnabas split ways. Barnabas goes with John Mark and Paul takes Silas and they go somewhere else. Because John Mark quit. He quit on them. And so, yes, there is grace. But because of that, they had to split up. And so John Mark was the quitter. We've all been there. We've all decided to quit responsibility and just stop doing something because we didn't want to do it anymore. But then we have the correct response here, and this is found, of course, church answer in Jesus. We have the passionate one. And in Matthew 26, 39, we have Jesus, who in the Garden of Gethsemane, it says, going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. So Jesus is our example of how to respond to responsibility. He was fully human, and this means that he got tired and hungry and thirsty and weary and even angry. But his obedience to the Father never faltered. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, but not my will, Lord, your will be done. He never ran from responsibility. He never pretended. He never quit. He said to God, not my will, but yours. 
He was always intentional in everything that he did. Just as Nehemiah was intentional with his time and his influence with the king, because Nehemiah actively looked for a way to glorify God by rebuilding the temple and the walls, we must also proactively look for ways to love and to serve. And this leads to the second point tonight, which is that real responsibility is intentional. Real responsibility is intentional. So what do I mean by intentional? I think the best way to define it is to look at Jesus. I said that he was intentional in everything he did, and I mean that everything he did was in obedience and submission to the Father. Jesus, who is fully God and fully human, was humbled by becoming a man with all of our earthly limitations. He was tempted and tried just as we were, but he was without sin. Everything he did was in accordance to God's will, and this is our example. This is how we can be intentional. As we accept responsibility, we will be transformed. We will begin to see others as God does, and as I begin to see others as God does. But we must press on from there and be intentional in everything that we do. Jesus says that we must take up our cross daily and follow him. Salvation is a process, and we must constantly choose God's will over our own. We must ask ourselves every day this question, why do I do the things I do? And whom do I do them for? That's the question. That's it. Why do I do the things I do and whom do I do them for? In every area of life. This is what it means to be intentional. This is what Jesus did. Jesus did everything in accordance to the Father's will. He said, I did nothing of my own accord, but of the Father. Real responsibility is intentional in every area of life. And this means that we must fight for others, because God is worthy of all people. As Scroggin said last week, we must look to the people in our life that God has given us and say, over my dead body will I let you live a stupid life. That's what it means to be intentional, to fight for people, to love others as God does. We must mean it when we say that. That's what real responsibility is. We must not be easily dismissed. We must be better friends than simply texting people to come and hoping that they show up. We must pray for their hearts to soften. We must be willing to go pick them up. We must be willing to chase them down in an alley because Jesus is worthy. And if we don't bring them, they won't come. How can we look Jesus in the eye on judgment day and say, I told them where I'd be. If they wanted to come, they would have come. We can't say that. We must be intentional. I read this from the same book that Nestor was reading, Why Revival Terries. This is a quote from Dr. W.E. Sangster. I don't know, it's a cool name, but he says this, How shall I feel at judgment if multitudes of missed opportunities pass before me in full review and all my excuses prove to be disguises of cowardice and pride? And I read that and I wept and I couldn't get it out of my head and it hasn't left me since. How could I feel on judgment day if all the missed opportunities flashed before my eyes like a panorama and All my excuses were just I didn't want to do it because I was scared what people would think or I didn't want to do it because I don't think they're worthy of my time. It's not right. We must be intentional in everything that we do because God is worthy of every single soul. That's how I came to be here standing in front of you to this day because people loved me and they were intentional in the way that they loved me. I saw the way that my small group leader interacted with his roommates and his friends and his coworkers, and literally everyone in his life. And I saw that he gave them value and dignity, regardless of whether or not they deserved it. Because he loved people rightly, and he was intentional. And he saw the responsibility that it came with being a believer. 
a Christian, and he said, I'm going to be intentional, and I'm going to choose to love others first. And that is what we are called to do. He was so good at bringing people in and intentionally loving them. We are all looking for something to do, something to do well, something to put our passion to, our hands to. But Jesus says that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. In this day when images flicker for but an instant and videos go viral overnight, we must turn our attention towards something eternal. We have to. You see, this is the most grand adventure that you can ever undertake. Intentionally loving and taking responsibility for what is near and dear to God's heart. This is the only cause worth fighting for. Nothing else will matter. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And his words tell us clearly that we are called to love others. D.L. Moody says it this way. He says, our greatest fear should not be of failing, but of succeeding at something that doesn't matter. I don't want to succeed at something that doesn't matter. And this leads to my final point that real responsibility is multi-generational. What I mean by this is that when we take real responsibility for discipling one another, it will have a lasting effect as the people that we disciple begin to disciple others. It's multi-generational. We'll look to scripture in a second to see an example of this, but let's reiterate the three points thus far. Real responsibility is transformational. Real responsibility is intentional. And real responsibility is multi-generational. We got a T, an I, and an M. What does that spell? Tim. Tim, do we have any Tims? Tim, Timmies? Nope. Well, we do have a Timmy in Scripture. 2 Timothy 2.2. Hey, look at that. I like that. That was fun. I had fun with that. (laughs) 2 Timothy 2.2 is a verse that I know quite well. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will be qualified to teach others. In that short, somewhat of a run-on sentence, we have four generations of believers, of Christians here. We have Paul writing to Timothy. He says, the things you've heard me say. So we have Paul. We have Timothy and many witnesses entrusting to reliable people who will be able to teach others also. So we have four generations of Christians here. And that's what I mean by real responsibility being multi-generational. One of the goals of discipleship is to leave a spiritual lineage behind. We don't want this to stop or to end with us. My small group leader loved me and discipled me. I surely don't want to be the end of the line. So how do we cultivate a lineage? How do we bear fruit that lasts? When I don't know the, question, the answer to these questions, I look to Jesus, because that's usually the best response. And in John 15, he tells us very explicitly what to do in order to provide good fruit and fruit that lasts. In John 15, he says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you'll be my disciples. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, 
and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you that you love one another. John 15 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. There is so much here, but we see for today's purposes over and over again, he says, if you want to bear fruit, and we should all as Christians want to bear fruit that remains, he says, abide in me and my words abide in you. And then he gives us these incredible promises, like you ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Like, what does that even mean? If I ask what I want, it'll be done for me? Like, that's incredible that you love one another as I have loved you. That is what it means to be multi-generational, to abide in him. It's all connected. He says that we must bear fruit, fruit that remains. And this is a command. You see there at the end, he says, these things I command you that you love one another. And this command is not just limited to small group leaders or life group leaders. This command is for all believers everywhere. We must take responsibility for the lost lambs of God. He commands us to do so. We can't be content doing our own thing by ourselves. And as we close, I just want to kind of recap tonight and then recap all three R's as we come to an end in this little series. That real responsibility is transformational. It will change the way we think about God and about others. We'll begin to see people as God sees them, valuable and worth loving no matter what. Real responsibility is intentional. It will cause us to choose God's ways rather than our own because he is worthy of a spotless bride made up of people from every tribe and tongue. And real responsibility is multi-generational. It will result in lasting fruit that comes from true discipleship passed down from Christian to Christian. So to recap the three R's, real devotional life, it should not just be another thing that we do but by the, the thing by which everything else we do flows through. It has to be the foundation. As Nestor said, we need to have our foundation in prayer. Real brotherhood and real sisterhood, real relationships, they should be living life together and thinking often of one another. And then real responsibility is something that we cannot shake. It is something that is inherent in our DNA, discipleship, not something that we just merely check off.